Well, friends, what are you willing to die for? What are you willing to die for? What is it that you are willing to die to get? What would you be willing to sacrifice even life itself for? Your family? Your friends? Your job? A dream of who you'll be or what you might accomplish someday? Friends, what are, what are the places or positions or pleasures of your life that, if they were taken away, life might not be worth living anymore. For some of us, especially those of us who are younger, death may seem a far-off thing. But for others, it may feel right around the corner. But my question this morning has much less to do with when you'll die and much more to do with why or what you'd be willing to die for. Because death reveals really who we are. Whether you realize it or not, your death, unless Jesus returns, reveals who you really are. Consider the famous French philosopher Voltaire. He used to say about Jesus Christ, curse that wretch. He would brag, in 20 years Christianity will be no more and my single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. Voltaire was a proud man. But when he died, we find him crying in desperation. I am abandoned by God and man. I give you half of what I am worth. If you will give me six months of life, then I shall go to hell. And you will go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. What a place of spiritual darkness his death revealed. But the moment of death can also reveal spiritual beauty. John Wesley died full of counsel and praise for God. His final words were this, The best of all is, God is with us. The best of all is, God is with us. The best of all is, God is with us. Farewell. Adoniram Judson, the great American missionary to Burma, suffering immensely at death, said to those around, I will go with gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Jonathan Edwards dying from smallpox, gave some final directions. He bid his daughter goodbye and expired, saying, Where is Jesus, my never-failing friend? There was something that even in their death they were living for. As we sang a moment ago, no chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. This morning, our text gives us a very similar glimpse into the true longing of the Christian heart as it shows us really the final day in the life of this man named Stephen. How he lived, what he said, and how he died. Stephen's death, as we're going to see today, revealed him to be a man whose heart beat with Christ and for Christ 
to the very end. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we were introduced to Stephen along with six of his friends. The early church, you'll remember, in Jerusalem affirmed these seven men to serve the widows during that time. These men were, they were set apart for the spiritual service and care and serving the practical needs of these women. They're coming as, as pre-runners to the office of deacon we see in our churches today. And those men were, were just another answered prayer by Jesus himself who had continued, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts up to this point, who had continued to protect his church, who had continued his mission of bringing the gospel near and far through these early followers. They've seen the threat of greed and the threat of need almost overtake them. They've been arrested, they've been questioned, and they've even been, been beaten and flogged. But each step of the way, as the church has faced opposition after opposition, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus has grown his church in glorious ways. Which brings us to our text today, where we find the threat from the outside world reaches its boiling point. How will Jesus respond now when one of his own looks death right in the eyes and willingly goes toe to toe with the very ones who would kill him? What will Jesus do now? What will become of the church now? And what is so important that it could get one of these early followers, this man named Stephen, killed? If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 6, verse 8. Acts 6, 8. Friends, if you don't have a Bible of your own or you left yours at home on the, in a hurry out the door today, you can always use the Pew Bible there in front of you. Acts 6, 8 is found on page 860. If you're new to the Bible... We're glad that you're here to open it with us this morning. You can find Acts 6-8 there on page 860 as well. Just look for that little number 8 when you get there on page 860. And that's where I'll begin reading in a moment. Now, let me say this before I read a portion of our text this morning. Today we are going to cover a large portion of Acts. We are going to go from Acts 6-8 all the way to Acts 8-3. So, so almost two full chapters. It's a lot of text. We're going to do this several different times throughout this book. But that's because the main part of today's sermon takes place in what we hear from Stephen, a speech. And it takes up all of Acts 7. It's this glorious speech, and, and I'm not going to have time to read it all today, word for word. We'll read most of it, but I'll refer to it a lot. So let me encourage you, even now as we prepare to read a portion of our text, keep your Bibles open this morning, or else you're going to be really bored or be really confused where we're at. So keep your Bibles open, in your laps, or ready to underline things, and take some notes even. Let's begin by reading from Acts 6, 8 through 15. As I do, will you stand with me once more in the honor of reading God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Acts 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, 
This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now, as we're going to make our way through this text, we're really going to see three sections kind of naturally rise to the top. This first section that I've just read to us of, of Stephen being seized and, and partially his trial. Then the second part we see is really Stephen's speech or, or a sermon or, or his defense or offense of what he's saying and what he's been doing. And then finally we're going to see Stephen's execution. And so in each step of the way, one of the things I want you to see, and, and really this, this entire sermon is, is just going to be looking. Okay, So, so if you want to know the applic main application of this sermon, it is look. And one of the main things I want you to see, and you'll see this in my points, is to look how Stephen, the first Christian killed, follows in the footsteps of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And so these are my three points if you want to write them down for you today. Number one, we see Stephen living like Jesus. Living like Jesus. You see this in 6, 8 through 15, which I just read. Second, we see Stephen speaking like Jesus. Speaking like Jesus. In verse, it's chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. And third, we see Stephen dying like Jesus. We see this in chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. So we see Stephen living like Jesus, speaking like Jesus, and dying like Jesus. And my prayer as we look at these three things is that we would see this man Stephen and the way he lived and the way he spoke and the way he died grows out of how he understood the Bible itself. And that we would be so captivated ourselves by God's Word and the Christ Jesus that it holds out, that we would follow Stephen in the same way. So let's think about first how Stephen living was living like Jesus. How Stephen was living like Jesus. We see this in those opening verses there, coming at the tale of Stephen being put forth as a servant in the early church. We see that his ministry isn't just serving tables. He's actually doing a lot more than serving tables. He isn't like just some of us who just assume that if we're doing one thing in the church, then we must be good to go and we don't need to stretch ourselves. No, Stephen is going all in. He has this growing ministry of preaching and teaching and, and even healing and performing miracles. He's taking up a, a very similar role that the apostles themselves have. And how is he doing it? Well, Luke tells us it is the same work of God that the apostles received. He describes Stephen as full of grace and power. Do you see that there? I don't miss this because it helps us understand the great goal which all Christians should be striving for. And this is only one of the three ways that Luke specifically talks about Stephen's spiritual life. Back in Acts 6-5, if you, if you can look there really quick, we read that they chose Stephen because he was a, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And now we have this second description of him as a man full of grace and power. And then finally in verse 55 of chapter 7, Luke tells us that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. We find here that Stephen's gospel ministry, like the ministry of Christ and like the ministry we ourselves are called up to take, is to be a ministry marked by the work of the Spirit within us. We are not called as Christians to do things in our own strength. 
because we have a Savior, as Luke makes so abundantly clear in his gospel, who operated in the power of the Spirit. And likewise, we too are to walk, as we see Stephen doing here. Acts 2.22 uses these similar words about Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Friends, while we may not all be given great gifts of miraculous healing like we find here, we do find the reality that the work of the Spirit of God is to equip and enable the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. And that's no less true today. But this doesn't sit well with everyone, does it? We're told there that there were some men who rose up from what was called the synagogue of the freed men. The synagogue of a free, it's a Jewish synagogue. It was called the synagogue of the freed men. And we're told that those who rose up from there are from four different places. The first two being from North Africa and the second two being from Turkey. Particularly, one of those places being Tarsus. We're going to see somebody who's from there a little bit later on. And like Stephen, though, they were Hellenist. They were Greek-speaking Jews. These Hellenistic Jews were not very popular in Jerusalem. So this Hellenistic synagogue had a reason for not wanting to make waves in the Jewish culture. More than likely, this synagogue, this Jewish synagogue, which is called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, was a synagogue made up of Hellenist Jews who had escaped slavery. More than likely a slavery that they had entered into long, long ago as a people. And so they were a bit of outcasts in the Jewish culture. A bit of some underdogs for Judaism. And so they don't want to cause a ruckus. And it is perhaps because of this that, that they do approach Stephen as one of their own because of what he's doing. And so we're told that they dispute with him over several key things. And they can't keep up with his spirit-empowered pushback. They simply do not have the spirit-empowered wisdom to overcome the new covenant wisdom of God that has been given to Stephen. So what do they do? And they bring forward those who would falsely accuse him. Those who would claim he was a blasphemer, making themselves into blasphemers themselves by opposing God's chosen man. And what are the charges that they bring? We see them there in verses 11 through 14. And it all really centers around that first statement they make there in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And this is when things get really good. Look at what happens. Just like Jesus, Stephen has the elders and the scribes stirred up against him. Just like Jesus, Stephen is drugged before the Jewish council where Caiaphas is still operating as the same high priest. And just like Jesus, Stephen has false witnesses come and speak untrue things about him. And just like Jesus, all of the trouble seems to center on where we worship God and who this Jesus of Nazareth actually is. Stephen stands in the footprints of his Savior. Stephen knows full well that a servant is not greater than his master. And yet, what an image. When the council looks upon this servant, they see the face of one shining like an angel. Now, Luke's no dummy. He knows exactly what he's doing here in recounting this. And he wants us to see, even before Stephen begins to speak, 
the Old Testament fulfillment and the Old Testament lines that we are seeing being drawn here into what Stephen is doing. As Stephen is about to launch into his speech, Stephen takes his place in a line of shining faces. Those of old who met with God, those who were God's very mouthpiece to his people. Hey friends, was it not Moses himself, the one that they accused Stephen of going against? Wasn't it this Moses who would glow after being up on the mountain in the presence of God? And wasn't it Jesus Christ himself as he met with Moses and Elijah up on Mount Tabor? who was transfigured and shined forth as the very word made flesh. We see now what the high priest and all the Jewish leaders should have seen from the beginning. That this man had met with God. And he speaks as one who knows the way, the truth, and the life. So we see there at Acts 7-1, the high priest says, Are these things so? Are these things so? Me, Stephen... Have you said that Jesus has come to destroy the temple and to crush the customs of Moses? Have you spoken against the law and against God himself? Have you spoken against the holy land in which we live? Friends, how would you respond? Put yourself here for a minute. How would you respond? What would you say if you knew that your very next words could mean your death? Because I think full well Stephen knew exactly what he's getting himself into. And that's the reason he's about to say what he's about to say. And to push it a bit further, Christian, well, I realize that in our current culture, we may not be facing this kind of opposition. Are you living in a way in which these kind of questions get sparked? You know, this this week in Bible study, we looked at Philippians 1 and 2. And Philippians 2, it's a sobering passage because it exposes the way our lives can hurt our attempts to hold out hope. We looked at this, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Doesn't that describe what we see in Stephen here? But friend, does it describe you? How might your life be hurting your witness to the power and the majesty and the worthiness of Jesus Christ? And what might you say when disputing does come your way? Which brings us to the long speech. It is the longest speech in the New Testament outside of the teaching of Jesus. So let's consider how Stephen now goes from being a man of deed into a man of word. Point number two, speaking like Christ. Now, before we get into exactly what Stephen says, it's worth considering it as a whole. So so let me kind of give you a framework for what he's about to jump into, because it is a lot. Like I said, I do not have time for us to read the entirety of it today. I want you to go read it this afternoon. We talk about it more. The big question, though, as I come to this text is, why does Luke now include such a lengthy speech from Stephen to begin with. Uh, couldn't, he, couldn't Luke have summarized it so well? I mean, I mean, the book of Acts is a summary in itself. He does not recount all that happens. Why does Luke take, take up an entire chapter with what Stephen has to say? Why does he give this long rundown of the history of Israel? And maybe you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And this is some of the weirdness that you feel when you come to church. 
It's that these people are always talking about what's happened in the past as if somehow it's meant to shape our future. Yes. So what's the point of all that Stephen has to say? Well, Stephen aims to show them why Jesus and Jesus' followers are not being accepted and how at the same time, under the persecution and the threat of disaster upon the early church, at the same time, this is the very thing that God has intended to bring about his kingdom. And how can they know that? Because that's the way it's always been. It's the very thing I want you to walk away understanding this morning. See, like I said earlier, there's not some big practical application held out in this passage besides speaking the word of truth in season and out of season even if it means your death. But the bigger blessing of this passage is for us to understand and love the Lord by realizing what Stephen wants the people to see here. That God, the God that we worship, the God that we pray to, the God that we sing to, the God that we read about and we study and we want to grow in our love and devotion to, that that God is a God who does not exist in places built by hands and He is not worshipped by mere conformity to some standard or climbing some moral ladder. He is to be worshipped in our hearts and He is to be worshipped as the God who redeems. And as we move through this section now, it's really what you begin to come to see. It begins to come to the surface. This, this Greek word, God, Theo, is used 16 times in this passage. 16 times. We find that for Stephen, facing the charges of blasphemy, his only defense is, you've never really accepted the people of God before, but that's never stopped God to begin with. He starts with Abraham. Look back. At Acts 7 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. He addresses them as family. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 fathers. What does Stephen begin with here? He begins with the first family that God calls forth with a covenant. This man, Abraham. We read about this in Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 25, Abraham's story. It was a popular opinion of the day that God had given special privileges to those who, who lived in Palestine, and more specifically to those who lived in the holy city of Jerusalem. This is still the belief that many Jews hold today, and even some Christians. 
But by taking such a high view of the promised land, it actually, we see here now, leaves little room for the saving work of Jesus as the Messiah. As long as we're in the land, we're all good. Stephen argued that this is wrong. And this is why he starts with Abraham. Abraham, he mentions here, does all of his traveling, and he does as he does with God making this wonderful covenant with him. It was God, you see there, who brought him to each of these places. Do you notice how God is the main character? God is the one who is doing. God is the one who is calling. God is the one who is making covenant. And God is the one who is making a way for Abraham. While Abraham spent considerable time in the land that God had promised him, he did not live as if he had arrived at the height of God's purposes for him. So the first point Stephen makes here is that God blessed Abraham even though he did not yet occupy as much as a foot of the Holy Land. The land is not the blessing. You remember they told Stephen that he had blasphemed this holy place. Stephen says it's not about this holy place. This is not how we know God. This is not where we come into the blessing of God. It is a mere picture of something that God has given us to point to something else. So in verses 9 through 16, Stephen continues to show the same was true for the 12 sons of Jacob. Let me encourage you to go back this week and read Genesis 42 through 45. What we find there is that God kept and blessed his chosen family, though the hated and rejected brother Joseph was down living in Egypt. And it's through that brother Joseph that God preserves them. And then finally, Stephen's clinching example is Moses. As we see it laid out in verses 17 through 36. Let me read a portion of it for us. Look back at Acts 7, 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God, just note here how much he talks about what God's doing, which God had granted to Abraham. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would be, not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. So we see here that Moses was in Egypt. And he grows up there in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, learning all the ways of the Egyptian until he kills an Egyptian for harming one of his Hebrew kin, forcing him ultimately to go on the run for 40 years. And it's there on the backside of the mountain that God enters the picture again. Picking up in verse 30, here's what we find. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, 
whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So what is Stephen getting at by recounting Moses here now? God met, he says, and took care of Moses and his people outside of the Holy Land. Do you see that? When God comes to Moses in the bush, what does he say to him? He doesn't say, take your sandals off because I'm going to give you a holy land. No, he says you're now currently standing on holy ground. The holy ground, we find, friends, is not some strip in Palestine. We find that the holy ground is wherever God meets his people. And not just inside the borders of a nation. The greatest miracles of Israel, we find, happened in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness not in the promised land. We can begin to see the outlines of Stephen's argument emerging. If his opponents were asserting that the land, along with the law and the temple, as we're going to see next, were the permanent essential core of their faith, Stephen reminds them that God's call and promise to the patriarchs came before all of those things. The essence of Judaism then was not the land, it was not the temple, and it was not the law of Moses at all. But the essence of their faith that has now been handed over to us as Christians was God's promise that He would be their God and they would be His people. But they didn't like this now. And they didn't like it then either. That's exactly where he goes next. Stephen's argument is, is heating up to the boiling point now. For all the lip service his opponents had just given to Moses, the reality for them is that the Israelites failed to understand Moses and even opposed him from the start. Worse, they never obey the word of God as Moses gives it to them. And throughout their history, they sought one idolatry after another from the golden calf at Moloch. Look back at Acts 7, verse 37. This Moses... This one that you guys have been saying I'm blasphemed. This, this Moses who, who led his people out. This Moses that God called forward. This Moses is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And what's the point here? The point Stephen wants to make abundantly clear is that the law of Moses could not save the Israelites. It could not do it. It would not work. It had become their fundamental misunderstanding. Their hope was in their own obedience. 
But it was a false hope. Not only because they could not keep the law perfectly, but they had in fact turned aside again and again and again in disobedience. Now maybe some of you kids feel this way. You can relate to the children of Israel here. Us parents definitely can. But maybe some of you kids feel this way. That not only do you not obey your parents all the time, but sometimes you don't even want to. Your heart actually tells you to do the opposite. Stephen says that's exactly what was happening to the Israelites. Your problem is a common problem. And so... They weren't trying to reach God through perfect obedience. No, Moses told them what? This is the good news you children should hear today. Moses told them to look for another prophet like him who would comfort their brothers. Who is he? Well, let's keep going and find out. To get there, we have to now go through the temple. Surely that was the place where they could always meet God. Surely the temple was it. How dare you, Stephen, to blaspheme the temple? Well, friends, we see here that, in fact, the temple itself was not a permanent feature in Judaism either. Picking up in verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he, spoke, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out, notice here God doing the work again, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. This final sacred cow of Judaism was the temple. We've seen Stephen now dis, dismantle the sacred cow of the land. He's dismantled the sacred cow of the law, and finally he's going to now dismantle their hope in the temple. They put their hope in this false reality. God is surely with us. We have the temple. Stephen answered this foundation of false security there in verses 48 through 50. You see that. He quotes from Isaiah 66. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What has Stephen just done for them? What Stephen has just done is he's basically taken them back through God's redemptive story. Do you see that? If you, if you want to understand the Old Testament itself and kind of a big overarching theme and, and work, Stephen's speech gives us a, a mighty understanding of what God was doing and how the people received it. Shown them each step of the way that it was never them, it was never their land, it was never their law or their temple that was what kept them. He has shown them that their hope was always placed in the wrong place and that their hearts were always far from God. It was seen in the way that they treated the one God had sent. God had sent and the way they had ignored the word God had given them. In some ways, what Stephen has just done is go on the offensive and flip everything they've accused him of back on themselves. They have blasphemed God. They have spoken against God. They have ignored God by ignoring His kindness and hating the very ones that He sent them. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, consider the land. Is it possible, let me just ask, to imagine that since we live in, in a bit of a privileged nation, 
where so much good has been done and there's so many godly people, we will surely inherit God's blessing generation after generation? Consider the law. Don't we sometimes, like the Jews of old, make a show out of God's Word? We carry it with us. We mark it appropriately. We thumb through it piously, but fail to let it take root in our hearts, allowing them to bubble with love and devotion for Him. And what if the temple... It is easy to suppose that that since we go to the place where God has chosen His people to meet... We will receive spiritual blessings. I'm, I'm here on Sundays. But have we come to worship with the right spirit? See, that's the whole problem. Friends, we are reminded even here and now that it is possible to have all these things yet be pitifully and utterly without hope. And this is the main point Stephen wanted to make sure that no one missed those who were listening to him and those who would read this so many years later. The point that he wanted to make sure that they wouldn't miss, he drives home in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Do you see his boldness? Do you see his theology? Do you see his Savior? What Stephen had come to know through the Holy Spirit was that Jesus was marked for death long before he was ever born because he was coming in a long line of those who they had killed before. But Stephen also knew that this righteous one was their only hope. And the God who provided for his people each and every step of the way throughout all of history, that this God would finally and fully provide for them through the Christ that they would kill. It reminds me of the 1700s evangelist George Whitfield who preached to a New England church three evenings in a row, and he preached the same sermon, Ye must be born again! The message was so vigorous that the elders of the church finally came to him and asked, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep preaching, Ye must be born again? And Whitfield responded, Because ye must be born again! Stephen wanted to get the same message across you have rebelled against God. You need a Savior. So how would they respond to such a message? Would Stephen even be able to give an altar call? Let's look at the final section of this passage where we find Stephen dying like Christ. Personally, I believe Stephen was just getting going. If I know a preacher... He was just getting started. I believe he had much more to say about the righteous one. But we see that there really are two kinds of people in this world in this passage, don't we? There are those who, like the crowd Peter preached to back in Acts 2, 37, responded to the word by being cut to the heart and crying out, What must I do to be saved? And there are those 
like the leaders Stephen spoke to here. Look back at Acts 7.54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They could not handle it any longer. They wouldn't let him finish. They plugged their ears and chomped at the bit to get at him. Stephen's sermon was his death warrant. But he was standing tall. He had lived like Christ. He had spoken like Christ. And now he would die like Christ. In response to a godliness they wished to deny in silence, the Sanhedrin went berserk. Verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. These respected, dignified, religious leaders descend upon a young, innocent man and execute him. Their action was illegal, it was brutal, but they did not care. As I was considering it more this week, I thought it interesting that, that none of the apostles stepped forward to come to Stephen's defense. You, you have to think, surely, if, if Peter or James or John were there, they would have said something. They would have said, hey, if he's going, we're going with him. Why? Where are they? I think the reason we don't hear from them is because this takes place so quickly. It is in an instant. As Stephen is about living as Christ lived, he has taken over so fast that no one has a chance to do anything. They are so enraged by it that they cannot be held back any longer. We don't know if Gamaliel was there, but, but the, the, the admonition that he had given earlier to the Jewish leaders to, to let them go and not have anything to do with them anymore was not enough anymore. And so they are taken over, and they take over Stephen. They probably took him outside the city where the witnesses repeated the charges. They threw him down an embankment. It was the witnesses' privilege to do so. And they cast great stones on him, followed by more stones from the crowd themselves. Friends, what are we to make of this? What are we to do with the first Christian killed for his faith? Well, friends, oddly enough, I think Luke wants us to do nothing less than to take hope and comfort from it. Why? Because of what Stephen sees. Do you realize the glory of it? You see, Stephen had just proclaimed from Isaiah 66 that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And now what Stephen does is look up and sees that very thing. He sees his Savior reigning and ruling from the throne. He sees the very one that he's been proclaiming. The righteous one is there and what he had believed by faith now becomes sight. What he had spoken in boldness now becomes a glorious vision. 
He was a risky radical trusting the Lord, but now, after proclaiming in faith, his faith turns to sight. What was once held only in his heart now becomes visible with his eyes. He looks and sees the reality that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus is the reigning Savior. And he sees him standing there. The one that they crucified and murdered, who rose again and ascended. He's there, ruling and reigning. He sees him standing. This is no small thing. Scripture uniformly pictures Jesus as seated in the New Testament. But on this occasion, he was standing at the right hand of God. Christ comes to his feet to welcome the first martyr home. This brother of ours, in his death, taught us what it looks like to truly live for something. And so we read in verse 59, he takes up the words of Christ himself. He called out, Lord Jesus, the one that I have longed to see, the one that I have proclaimed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What could cause a man to do such a thing? Truly blessed are the meek and the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted for Jesus' name's sake. What could buoy us up to do the same, friends? What could cause us to take up the small crosses of our daily toil and perhaps the large cross of a persecuted death? Friends, don't you see that Stephen's selfless love is motivated by the gospel itself? Oh, how Christ died for Stephen while Stephen was yet a sinner showering him with undeserved grace. And friend, if you are in Christ today, the same is true for you. And so the response of the death of Christ for Stephen was to live for Christ and then to die for Christ and to spend eternity with Christ. What are the effects of such a death? You know, it's been said by many that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's exactly what we're going to come to see over the next two weeks as we're introduced to a new threat in this man named Saul and a new challenge to the church's mission to go. 8.1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. As we prepare to consider this more, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, may we take up the joy in the story of God's redemption even unto death that we too would join with the chorus of all those who have gone before, lifting our voices 
to the God who saves yesterday, today, and forevermore. Some have crossed before us safely to that land of perfect rest. Can you hear them singing faintly in the mansions of the blessed? Mighty Jesus, bear us over there to kneel before thy throne. May we join thy saints forever praising thee and thee alone. Hallelujah, 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 praise the Lamb. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah to the great I Am. Let us pray to Him now. Lord Jesus, we do pray. And we ask that you would bear us over through many dangers, toils, and snares. That we would walk in the footsteps of our brother Stephen as he walked in the footsteps of Jesus. May we so be captivated by the death of the righteous one that we would live for him. That we would live for him even if it means death. God, only you can do this work through the power of your spirit to encourage and equip our hearts. So would you do it now even as we respond by taking this supper. In Jesus' name. Amen.